0: This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com.
1: Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Today is a conversation I have wanted to have for a long time. I sit down with seminary professor and author, Jen Rossner. We discuss Jesus as a Jewish rabbi and how a deeper knowledge of Judaism can add to our Christian faith. We also discuss a few historical events that ultimately declared Judaism and Christianity as two separate religious traditions. I think you'll find this episode very interesting, and my hope is that it will lead you to dive deeper into the traditions of Judaism and how those intersect with Christianity. You'll be able to do that by reading Jen's newest book, Finding Messiah. As you know, I interview a lot of authors on the show, And what I love about interviewing authors is they've spent months and sometimes years delving into the topic or the life experience they write about. Along the way, there have been books that have influenced me in ways that I didn't expect. So I've curated a list of eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me as a free resource for you. If you are already a part of the Grace Enough community, the list will be delivered to your inbox. If not, you can find the list at graceenoughpodcast.com slash books, or by clicking the link in the show notes. Good morning, Jen, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yes, I am mentioned to you already that I am really excited to have this conversation. I feel like it's something that Christians, we long for, and we don't even know that we're longing for it. And so as we jump in, take a moment to introduce yourself, your family, and tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I grew up in a Jewish home in Northern California um, my best friend in high school was Catholic, but we, um, as I look back, I think it's interesting that I didn't totally know what that meant. And I would say that I never, um, heard the gospel. Like I never knew who Jesus was until college. Uh, and I went to this large public state school in California. Um, and it just so happened to be surrounded by Christians and started attending church with friends honestly, because all my friends were Christians and I didn't like being the only kid in the dorms by myself on a Sunday morning. Um, And so college for me became a real searching time about my Jewish upbringing. And this person called Jesus, who I kept kind of now hearing about from my friends and Campus Crusade, which is now called Crew. And so my last year in college, I uh, became a follower of Jesus, and I and I was just um, captivated by who Jesus was and the claims that he made and the community that I was experiencing. But I had no idea at that time what to do with my Jewishness. I didn't know any mm. other Jewish followers of Jesus. I had never even heard of Messianic Judaism, and so I. But I was fascinated by these questions and conversations in the Bible, and so. I was a political science major in college. I scrapped my plans to go to law school and instead I went to divinity school uh, because I just wanted to keep diving into yeah. theology and religion and these internal questions that I had. Um, and it was during my MDiv program, which I did at Yale Divinity School, where the Jewish piece, uh, through a series of circumstances in my life, kind of came back up for me. And I thought, I've left something behind just going into a very Christian church world, which I loved. And so when I finished my MDiv, I came back to California and I pursued a PhD at Fuller Seminary. And these questions, which were central to my own identity, kind of spilled out into my doctoral research. And my dissertation, which is now published as my first book, uh, really wrestled through 20th century and 21st century Jewish Mm -hmm. Christian relations and some really exciting frontiers that are being Uh, broached in that regard Um, but the whole thing was just this quest for me to work out this this deep tension that I felt in my own being in my own Mm. identity um, and my own self-understanding and so kind of fast forward now I um I can I call myself a messianic Jew I feel uh, very at home in both the Jewish and Christian worlds and all kinds of iterations of both um, my husband is a Messianic Jew who was raised in the Messianic Jewish movement. So has kind of been thinking about these questions um, even much longer than I have. Um, and I teach and write very much on this topic as well. So um, it makes its way into all of the classes that I teach at the different institutions that I teach for. And it's the, it's the main subject of my writing, including uh, my new book, Finding Messiah.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to know, like, how have your parents taken this on?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And, uh, I feel like my story in that regard is not the typical story. You hear a lot of stories in Jewish families where let's say the kid, the college age kid becomes a follower of Jesus where, you know, sometimes there's lifelong rupture yeah. there of relationship and rejection and, and just kind of horror. And, um, and I should say that my my mom grew up very committed to Jewish life and Jewish rhythms. And she was like the camp counselor at the Jewish camp every year and not in a particularly religious family, but a very culturally Jewish family. Um, And so when we uh, actually, my brother and I both became followers of Jesus in college uh, and she uh, initially that was off-putting for her. And she sort of thought, what did I do wrong? Like, did I not raise you with a strong enough Jewish identity? Um, Whereas my dad had always kind of pushed back against organized religion and what he saw as hypocrisy in the Jewish Mm. communities that he had been a part of growing up and, and just some shallowness. There wasn't a lot of spiritual depth in the Judaism that he had experienced. Mm -hmm. And so he was actually much more open to it. And he said, you know, I always saw my job as to give you a spiritual foundation and I knew that you would build on it somehow. And so I didn't expect this, but he was much more open. And again, through kind of a really amazing God orchestrated set of circumstances, my parents both ended up also becoming followers of Jesus. And so, wow, that's so unique. Yes. And it is definitely not the typical story um, for, for these kinds of situations. And so it's really meaningful to me that it's now something that my parents and I and our families kind of share together. And and, and interestingly, um, at this point, my husband and I and our kids are much more kind of connected to Jewish rhythms, even than my parents are. My parents um, are are more sort of at home in the Christian world at this point, although, of course, they still kind of hold on to their Jewish identity. So it's been interesting to see how that plays out over the years. But I've been so thankful that it hasn't been an ongoing source of tension in my relationship with my parents.
1: Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing I love that you write about in your book, you know, that we tend to forget that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi Mm -hmm. and that he actually formed his life around the Jewish calendar, not the Christian calendar. And Mm -hmm. so will you kind of, you know, share a little bit of the background of how Judaism and Christianity became so separated and almost I don't want to say they became enemies of one another because that's not it, but very much in conflict with one another.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's such an important question and it's actually sort of the question where I begin the book. Uh, The book intersperses my own journey and story with reflections, theological reflections, biblical reflections, historical reflections. And this is sort of where I open up in terms of where do we start this conversation? It's like, how did these traditions become, how did these religious traditions become so separate? And as you said, in many ways, hostile to one another historically. And so I think it's really important to note, you know, as we read our new testaments, Jesus was, was very embedded in, in, in a Jewish context. His early followers were Jewish. Their, their rhythm of life was this Jewish rhythm of life. And, mm-hmm. and it's centered around the Jerusalem temple and, these kind of set of Jewish practices that again, because of all this history have come to seem quite foreign, I think to many Christians, there's sort of different academic theories on this. There's some who would say that the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity, like is already happening in the new Testament and that Jesus came maybe to found a new religion, or if not Jesus, then Paul came to sort of Mm. out with the old in with the new that Paul is um, kind of in the business of denouncing everything that's wrong with Judaism and founding this new thing called Christianity. And that's not how I read the text. I ascribe to sort of a, um, a an opinion that the split took place much later. And we have, mm-hmm. I think, historical evidence that, that convincingly shows um, that it was a much longer, more complicated process mm-hmm. that took place in different geographical regions at different periods. So just to kind of dip into this complex history, you end up having uh, these two Jewish revolts, two d- depending on how you count, maybe three. One of them is sort of outside uh, the land of Israel, Palestine at the time, um, where you get this increased hostility between Judaism and the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. uh, and and that causes Christians, Gentile Christians, non Jewish Christians, non Jewish followers of Jesus. It, it's increasingly a liability for them to be associated with Judaism. And because the gospel is flourishing among these non-Jewish communities, this is Paul's mission, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's right. Um, it's, it, it's becoming more feasible for Christianity to, to begin to move away from Judaism. And then these Jewish revolts uh, become a factor in that, And I would say a key moment comes when the emperor Constantine becomes the emperor of the Roman empire. And he, in some sense, this is now beginning of the fourth century. uh, He, in some sense, becomes a Christian. So now you have this kind of coupling of Christianity and empire, uh, Mm -hmm. which I think changes the history of Christianity forever. And Constantine he ends up institutionalizing these kind of fractures that were already taking place so if we read the church fathers from the second and third centuries we're seeing that there's already the beginnings of uh, hostility between judaism and what is emerging as christianity you you have these definitions of what it means to follow jesus is to sort of distance oneself from judaism and jewish practices. And then again, with the coming of Constantine, who convenes the Council of Nicaea Mm. in 325, Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of this gets solidified. And and, and it's interesting because, you know, ultimately it's out of the Council of Nicaea that we get the Nicene Creed, which many Christians uh, in different denominations recite each week without knowing um, necessarily all of the history and the backstory Mm. with regard to the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity and the way in which um, the Council of Nicaea is where Easter is officially decoupled from Passover. Um, it's the mm. place where Christian worship on Sundays uh, sort of officially trumps the Jewish Sabbath, which is on Saturdays. And so you get these really key moments uh, of, of this separation happening uh, again at the Council of Nicaea. And yet there still is kind of this intermingling of the communities. There's evidence that, that even later there's, there's some struggling of what that means. And of course, as this trajectory continues, uh, you're, you're getting this sort of Christian triumphalism against Jews where, uh, where you know, for example, the destruction of the second temple becomes this symbol of God's rejection of the Jewish people. That's how Christian tradition tends to read that event And so you see exactly what Paul warns against in in, in Romans 11, which is like, don't boast against the root. Uh, That's kind of what we see beginning to happen, such that you get this very dangerous thread of actually Christian uh, anti-Judaism, where Christianity is defining itself as the sort of newer, better thing against Judaism, thereby erasing any kind of commonality between the two, which is what we see in the New Testament. and 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 this is sort of another conversation but eventually we can directly trace how that turns into then anti-semitism and how you know hitler in world war ii is drawing on thinkers like martin luther who again martin luther is such this um he's such a hero in in protestant christianity and for good reason and i think what we don't realize is this really dark shadow side of martin luther who um has horrible things to say about the jews And, and as I said, his, his thought becomes in some sense, the foundation for what Hitler will execute much later. So there's a very dark history there, but, but again, we can sort of zoom in on any one of these moments and see, wait, how did it become that these are entirely separate, you know, religious communities and traditions that have had this very challenging, um, rivalrous history. I just hear you saying
1: I mean sharing all of the history and it does make me think so much about how much you know hindsight uh, we can see the big picture if we actually mm-hmm. study it and pay attention to it but in the moment mm-hmm. things could have looked very very different than what we're being mm-hmm. taught now. Yeah. And that that kind of applies to a lot of things mm-hmm. <laughs> not mm-hmm. just the the um Hostility between Judaism and Christianity. But I will say, in your book, Finding Messiah, it's a journey into the Jewishness of the gospel. And you help the reader to really understand our roots, our Jewish roots, and how that really does set the stage for our Christian faith and practice. Mm -hmm. And so, will you share a few of those roots that are really, I mean, there are so many. That's why people should buy your book. Mm -hmm. But, um, Share a few of those roots that are really foundational for us to understand, to know, and to cling to.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the the book is sort of structured around topics in each chapter. So, for example, there's a chapter on the Sabbath, which we just sort of alluded to briefly, and the way in which the Sabbath functions in Jewish life and community and always has. It's sometimes surprising to realize that the Sabbath is like one of the Ten Commandments, and it's actually the longest of the Ten Commandments. Um, And and that just goes to show that it's always been a cornerstone of, of, as I said, Jewish life and community in a way that shapes the Jewish people. There's this kind of famous saying that says the more than the Jewish people have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jewish people. The Sabbath has Mm -hmm. sort of preserved this people as a community, as a distinct identifiable community. And it also says so much about how God created us, you know, and I think it speaks so strongly into our culture of productivity and efficiency and, you know, all these things that that sort of make us tick and that can also be our downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so pressing into what Sabbath has always meant to Jews, I think helps us understand this bigger story of what it means to be God's people and what that looks like and what it looks like to live into um, this commission and calling as the covenant people of God. I mean, in the book, there's also you know, a chapter on Paul and the ways in which, again, we just sort of briefly alluded to this, the ways in which Paul has traditionally been understood, especially since the Protestant Reformation, where we've had this sort of Lutheran reading of Paul through the lens of Martin Luther, Um, and ways in which now you have these uh, different understandings of Paul, whereby Paul wasn't the great champion of Christianity over against Judaism. In fact, Mm. um, scholars who are saying Paul never left Judaism behind. Paul was a Torah observant, dedicated Jew until the day that he died. Mm. And so how does that change our understanding of the New Testament if Paul isn't trying to do this out with the old in with the new, you know, here's everything that's wrong with Judaism. And that's why Christianity is better, uh, sort of agenda. And, and I'll just mention one more example. Uh, there's a chapter in the book on Jesus and ritual purity, which, you know, if you read the old Testament books, like Leviticus, uh, these books can be really disorienting and seem so strange and foreign, especially to our modern, sensibilities. And it's easy to just say, well, Jesus kind of didn't, he didn't care about like all that stuff. Uh, and and I think he really did. And if we read the gospels through the lens of this sort of ritual purity framework that the Torah, the first five books of our old Testament, lay out for us, it's remarkable. And I think it allows us to understand Jesus's ministry and mission on a whole new level that we can sort of miss if we're not looking for the connections and the ways in which Jesus was in fact embedded in this very Jewish second temple environment, again, that he wasn't leaving behind. He was working within Mm. and through. Um, And I think it helps us understand our Bibles better to to have a framework for some of these kind of foundational Jewish concepts.
0: This episode is brought to you in part and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
1: I want to talk about the ritual purity because I'm assuming that's what Christians, you know, me included, would often refer to as the ceremonial law. Is that what you're referring to?
2: Yes and no. You get these later divisions of, um, especially Christian thinkers who try to take, you know, in Judaism, you have what's called the 613 mitzvot. Mitzvot is the Hebrew word for like commandments. And so you have these 613 prescriptions. Uh, some are positive, some are negative, do this, don't do this, uh, that we see throughout the Torah. The first five books of our Mm -hmm. Bible of, of our old Testament is, is sort of like the core of the Jewish scriptures And so you have these 613 commandments and it's a little bit more complex because a lot of them, for example, have to do with the temple and like, we don't have a temple now. And so what do you do with those things? And there's all this Jewish discussion about that, but, but a lot of that has to do with this category of ritual impurity. And so these, these later categorizations like ceremonial and moral um, are not actually in the text. It's ways that people have tried, especially I think Christian thinkers have tried to make sense of them, and and maybe particularly have tried to say which of these still matter post, you know, the coming of Jesus. So while I think the categories themselves can tend to be a bit artificial, yes, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about, I mean, I mean, in in, in Jewish life, there's a real fluidity here. So they go, they range everything from you know, how to observe Jewish holidays, which is laid out in places like Leviticus to purity laws, which have to do with what we touch and what we don't touch and things like genital discharges, which are not super comfortable things to bring up all the time in Christian circles, but it's just a reality. in Judaism, Judaism is this very earthy embodied religion where it's important that we pay attention to our bodies and what's happening Mm -hmm. with our bodies. And what does that mean? And how do we honor God with our bodies? Um, you know, another set of these kind of mitzvot to these laws has to do with what we eat and what we don't eat. And that's always been a a centerpiece within Judaism. And I think all of that can give us a very rich framework for thinking about our bodies, the way that we serve God and the way that we obey God. So that's sort of a a winding answer to your question. Yeah. Um, Well, and I know
1: it's not simplistic and that's the thing I think like, because you really are, you know, speaking to me because I'm the person that's like, well, but we're not still making sacrifices. And Mm -hmm. so where does that come into play when you're talking about the law?
2: It's a great question. There's a million questions that sort of spring up from this kind of conversation. Um, And I would say a couple things. I think that we are not still making sacrifices. And I think that has everything to do with the destruction of the temple uh, which is the only place where sacrifices can sort of properly be done, which I also think has everything to do with the death of Messiah, right? I mean the death of Christ the the New Testament is very explicit about that being the sort of final sacrifice that atones for sin. Mm-hmm. And yet it's it's kind of interesting to think that you know Jesus died forty years before the temple was destroyed. the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. and so, for 40 years, you still have temple sacrifices going on. And our New Testaments talk about, you know, followers of Jesus being at the temple, participating in these temple rituals. And so it wasn't as though sacrifices ceased immediately. I think they took on new meaning as, and I think we see a lot of this in sort of the Eucharist, right? The way that we sort of participate in the sacrifice of Christ. I think that's how sacrifices came to be understood for Jewish Christians in the first century after Jesus's death, before the destruction of the temple, they take on a new meaning as kind of a commemoration, a a memorial of Jesus's sacrifice. So of course we could say more about that. That's one important thing, I think. Um, And and I should also add that in Jewish circles, there's lots of talk about the temple being rebuilt, which I think raises interesting questions uh, for followers of Jesus. Um, The other thing I think is important to say is the way that I understand the New Testament, and this comes out very much in the book, is that I think the New Testament lays a framework whereby it looks a little bit different for Jews to follow Jesus than it does for Gentiles to follow Jesus. Mm. So in my understanding of the text, um, Jews are very much called to continue living as Jews, to continue embodying these covenantal practices that have always characterized the Jewish community. And you actually have this question raised in the New Testament. and, And the clearest place we see it is Acts 15. Uh, which is the Jerusalem council, where there's this question of like, wait, one of the amazing things about Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is that um, now Gentiles, non-Jews are sort of welcomed in to this covenantal relationship with God. And you have this group of people, the Judaizers, who are saying, well, then they have to live as Jews. Like they have to actually become like be circumcised and observe the Sabbath and and do these Jewish practices. And this is a debate in the early community of like, wait, do they, don't they? And Peter says, no, because the spirit came on them just as it came on the Jews. So it doesn't seem like they need to change. And so this is this big question that occasions the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And the conclusion that the council comes to is no, Gentile followers of Jesus are not obligated to live as Jews and to sort of take on the practices of Torah in the way that the Jewish people have always been commanded to do. So again, it's a mm-hmm. complex topic, but I think that the New Testament sets a precedent for Jewish followers of Jesus continuing to live as Jews and Gentile followers of Jesus not being required to take on all of those practices that have always been the center of God's covenant with the people of Israel. So, so I think that these questions apply slightly differently de- mm-hmm. depending on who we're talking about. Hmm.
1: That is so interesting, because as someone who did not grow, I mean, doesn't have Jewish roots, maybe I do somewhere, you know, further down the line. You know, the question for me is, what are some of these practices, traditions, festivals, feasts, that we really would benefit continuing Mm -hmm. to participate in? I know my family, we started doing not the traditional Shabbat, but a Christianized version of the Mm -hmm. Shabbat, if I'm allowed to say that (laughs) on a Friday night and then Sabbathing into Saturday. And it's been a phenomenal gift to our family. Not easy, Mm -hmm. but a gift of rest and realizing that we can stop and that God will continue to provide during this. Mm
2: -hmm. But,
1: you know, what are those things that you really feel like we could enrich our walk with Christ? Mm-hmm. if we continued to participate or began participating in?
2: Yeah. I mean, again, a great question. I think Sabbath is a, is a really fascinating topic to talk about in this regard, because, you know, the Sabbath, as we're saying, has been kind of the centerpiece of God's covenant with the people of Israel. I don't regularly encourage Christians to practice Sabbath in the same way that Jews do, but I think that there's so much to be gained from sort of looking at almost like a Sabbath ethic. Like, what does it mean to take a day where we stop and where we, you know, for for religious Jews, we don't use technology. We don't drive our cars. We don't spend money um, to sort of disengage from commerce and the hustle bustle of our lives and our societies for a day. It's deeply restorative. Um, And, you know, the Jewish calendar like revolves around Shabbat, around Sabbath. That's what sort of anchors the week in Judaism. And so again, while I, while I don't, um, advocate Christians, or you should take on all these Jewish practices, I think there's so much richness to be gained from entering into these spiritual rhythms, uh, Mm -hmm. that, that can ground our lives. I I think it, it, it forces us to ask the question, what, if our week doesn't revolve around Sabbath, for example, what does it revolve around, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it reminds me of a story, uh, that, that I'll share briefly, uh, you know, in the Jewish calendar, there's there's as as I think in the Christian calendar, there's these holidays that the, that the year revolves around, you know, there's the spring festivals, Passover uh, and Shavuot, uh, which is Pentecost in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There's the fall festivals, which is Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot um, and, the, and the year kind of in the same way that the week in Judaism revolves around the Sabbath, the year in Judaism revolves around these different holidays. Um, and I'll never forget a friend of mine who's a Jew. His daughter at the time was in uh, preschool and he was talking about how calendar was all of these um, maybe distant in the distant past. They were religious holidays, but now they're secular holidays like Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day. And, you know, these And and, and he was just contrasting. You know, the way that, you know, in in America, we know that it's fall because Starbucks has like pumpkin spice lattes, and we know that it's winter because (laughs) there's like peppermint mochas or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. These, These kind of markers of the year, and how much richer to have our year oriented around. Uh, you know, the festivals, for example. And so I think it just raises questions about where, how are we marking time in our lives? How are we marking meaning in our lives and how easy it is um, to kind of get swept up into the pumpkin spice lattes? Not that there's anything wrong with them, I love them, but like, is that what's anchoring us? And I think Judaism provides a very rich, and again, I think Christianity also has a very rich liturgical calendar, especially into sort of the um, the higher church denominations uh, that, that also can be a very rich model um, for how we think about time and space and relationships and, and, and priorities and those kinds of things.
1: Well, and I think too, when you say it in that way, you know, we hear Christians, myself included, talk about not being conformed to the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to not be conformed to the world is to have intentional rhythms. Mm -hmm. whether that's you're a Messianic Jew, or like you said, looking more at the liturgical type calendar, it can become binding if Mm -hmm. we choose that, or it can actually become something that sets us free from the world's patterns. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And so I think that's a, that's a good way to, um, to sort of get at what I'm trying to say, which is that I don't think that all Christians should go and, 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 and start living as Jews. I do think that we that every Christian has something to learn from um, the covenantal contours of God's relationship with the people of Israel, which is what we read about through our Old Testaments. I mean not that mm-hmm. Judaism today is the same as Judaism in the Old Testament. It's changed a lot and it's had mm-hmm. to. Um, and there's a lot of history there. So I think we can't quite say, well Jews you know aren't doing the, the exact same things that they were in the, in the Bible. Um, and yet, Uh, at the same time, we can just learn about God's design for what it means to be the covenant people of God, which I would argue that Jews and Christians sort of together make up the covenant people of God by paying attention to these kinds of rhythms, by paying attention to, you know, what God instructs us to do and not to do with our bodies, by paying attention to the things that Jesus himself prioritized, uh, that I think we get a clearer perspective on the more that we understand Judaism. So, so pressing into that context helps us to understand, I would argue, what it means to follow Jesus. So
1: tell me, as a Messianic Jew, what does kind of your week look like, your calendar look like? Just because I'm curious.
2: You know, it's interesting. We also spent a time living in Israel, which which sort of adds a different twist mm-hmm. to the conversation because in Israel... Uh, the whole society is, you know, it's a, it's the Jewish state. And so the whole society revolves around a particular rhythm, um, whereas it feels much more countercultural mm-hmm. to live that rhythm in the United States, especially outside of a community that's also observing that rhythm. Yes. But with all of that being said, I mean, our family very much, I would say that Shabbat does anchor the week for us. And so we, we live a pretty, as pretty traditional Jews when it comes to Shabbat. We don't drive. We don't spend money. We don't you know, go to Starbucks. We don't uh, you know, use technology, work, uh, those kinds of things. And, and so it's so uh, refreshing to know that whatever did or didn't get done during the week, whatever happened during the week, we, we always know that we're going to have this day as a family, to kind of set those things aside and it's, and, Mm. and and detach from them. And sometimes it's hard to do, right. I want to just keep writing the book. I want to keep writing the article. I want to keep, you know, doing what I'm doing. Um, And yet it kind of, it helps to say, no, like, this is, this is what everything else revolves around for us. And Mm. just for our kids to know that there's that time that, um, you know, where we're not distracted in the same way. We're not, we're not rushing from one thing to the next. It's a really, meaningful day of family for us. And and I do have a conflicted relationship with it at some points. I mean, it's not as though it's always bliss all the time, but it's just it's a relief knowing that it's there every week waiting for us. And like I said, in Israel, most stores and restaurants are closed on Shabbat in Israel. So you really kind of feel it as a society in the in the United States um, or or elsewhere in the world. I feel like it's much more, as I said, kind of countercultural. And especially Mm -hmm. when I was single, that was the time when people were like, you know, going out out to meet something. Yeah. Yeah, Like that Friday night. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. when we go out. And so it was a real tension for me, um, to try to be pressing into Jewish practices, but also like, I don't want to be sitting home by myself, you know, while, Mm -hmm. while everybody else is doing these fun things. So it's certainly it's, you know, it's not always easy, but it, but like I said, it's, it's been deeply meaningful for us.
1: Well, and I think that raises just another question as, because um, I know <laughs> even when I, we practice Sabbath, you know, it's like, well, how do you deal with birthday parties? How do you deal with this and that? But my question for you is, how do you really combat that yoke of uh, legalism that can easily slip in, not just to someone who decides to practice traditions of the Jewish calendar, but mm-hmm. to any of us who follow certain religious practices.
2: Yeah. Another like really great question. I mean, I think on one hand, Christianity has, has uh, k- kind of going back to the history we we're talking about earlier, this history of hostility between Christians and Jews. I think Christians have been all too likely to, um, to sort of slap this label of legalism on Judaism, mm. Without realizing two things, as you just said, Christians are just as likely to become legalistic about things as Jews are. Absolutely. And if we read, uh, you know, throughout the Bible about what the Torah, what these Jewish practices really mean to the Jewish people, it's actually about freedom, isn't it? It's about, you know, like you said, not being not being conformed to the to the patterns of this world, not being bound by what society tells us needs to be our top priority. So I think there's actually a lot of intentionality on God's part in kind of calling the Jewish people to live in a particular way. And yes, it can become rote and it can become legalistic in the same way that anything can be. And so I think, um, and I think especially as Messianic Jews, we're always asking the question of like, how would Jesus view this maybe, or how does a a Messianic Jewish lens allow us to see these things maybe differently than than just an orthodox jewish lens might see them Mm -hmm. so one area where that comes up for example is like table fellowship so for jews who keep strict kosher these strict dietary laws that are prescribed in the old testament and have been interpreted you know by the jewish community ever since it can really limit the ability to go to people's homes and, Mm -hmm. and and eat with people and so we say uh-uh. like table fellowship is a huge, um, you know, cornerstone of, of the New Testament and of this community of Messiah. And so we're not going to go into someone's home and eat pork or shellfish or things that we feel convicted not to eat, but we're going to prioritize table fellowship over division on that mm-hmm. aspect. So I think there's always this constant discerning that takes place that is different than saying, well, Jesus just did away with all that stuff, you know, and and now oh, we don't okay. have to um, we don't have to worry about it anymore. And I think that you know I think this is one of the reasons that the religious leaders in the New Testament are frustrated with Jesus because he is kind of pushing the envelope a little bit. But I always want to say it doesn't mean he was wholesale throwing these things out. I mean, as we mentioned briefly in the book, there's this chapter on ritual purity, which is one of those areas where it's very easy to say, well, look, Jesus totally disregarded it, which I don't think is what he was doing. I think if anything, he's kind of reigning back in practices that had gone a little bit astray. And he's bringing forward this narrative of God's covenant with his people, whereby now you do have this incredible inclusion of Gentiles in the covenant with God, which is what I think that is a, is a theme of the New Testament that does require us to, to sort of always be thinking about, especially as Messianic Jews, like how does our pre- Jewish practices, how ought they look different um, than mainstream normative Jewish practices. And it's, and there isn't a one size fits all. I think it's a case by case, Mm -hmm. you know, discernment.
1: I know. And we just want the, um, 10 steps to be a messy young (laughs) Jew. I mean, I'm as guilty as that as the next person, right? Mm -hmm. Like I need the formula, but, um, like most things, it is Mm -hmm. not a black and white Mm -hmm. instead, there's a whole lot of gray. Mm -hmm. Um, so if someone who is a Christian is, you know, listening to this and saying, you know, I'm really interested in messianic Judaism. Um, not just becoming that—that's not what I mean. Um, but just the practices, or maybe they want to start to observe Sabbath. Where do you? Where would you tell them to begin?
2: I mean, I think one of the things that that I think for me sort of undergirds or or stands as the backdrop of all of these questions and conversations is just. The relationship between Jews and Christians, which has been a very complicated relationship, and I think for Christians, um, there's been things lost along the way in terms, as I've said, uh, in terms of our understanding of Jesus and his mission and ministry, in terms of our understanding of Paul, in terms of how we read our Bibles, in terms of this larger story of God's covenanting with human beings and how that's played out historically and in our lives, and and will you know, in the future. And so I think part of it is just making space for Jews and Judaism mm-hmm. in our thinking about these things. I feel like because of this parting of the ways and this kind of layering of division that we get, um, I, I would say, and, and, and I would say of the Christian students that I teach, um, it's not very common that Christians would think about a particular kinship with the Jewish people or that Christians would have it as like a go-to to to say, well, how does the Jewish community think about this? How does the Jewish community think about sin and the fall? How does the Jewish community think about marital relationships? How does the Jewish community, you know, and so I think Mm. part of it is just this larger issue of understanding that Jews and Christians are fundamentally related and that history has tried to Undo that, and I don't mm. think it can. I, I don't think I, I think our identities are forever bound together. And so, a, a part of what I would want to do on on just a more um, almost an abstract level is encourage and maybe challenge Christians to just make space for some of these conversations and to realize that Christianity actually kind of grew out of God's covenant with the people of Israel, and 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 how can it once again renew that connection that has been very much lost so so more than a a set of concrete recommendations i would want to say what's our orientation to god's covenant with the people of israel does it matter in terms Mm -hmm. of how we understand ourselves as christians does it influence our perspective on jesus uh so just this larger conversation about god's covenant with israel which i would argue has everything to do with the work of jesus and the christian gospel in ways that have been lost over the Mm -hmm. centuries. And I think anywhere that you dip your toes in, whether it's, you know, a kind of Sabbath practice or um, learning about Passover as we celebrate Easter, whether it's, you know, learning about the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, when we think about Pentecost, both in the New Testament and in, you know, church calendars today, these kind of connections that have been lost, but that I think shouldn't have been lost. And I think, Christianity has a lot to gain and Christians have a lot to gain by pressing back into those. And as I said, there's a lot I mean, any place you sort of dip your toe into these waters, I I believe, and, and I see this, it'll begin to sort of reorient the way that Christian life and discipleship is thought of and plays out.
1: Yeah. Well, and so as we close out here, that's a good question to end with, which is, how has how have you experienced your relationship even with Jewish people? And the you know, are they welcoming conversation from Christians about these roots?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know that can't be applied as a blanket statement to all Jewish or all Christian people.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess where I would start answering that question is we live in a remarkable era with regard to Jewish Christian relations. I mean, really, really incredible. And a lot of this um, kind of comes to fruition post Holocaust uh, and post founding of the modern state of Israel, when Christians are beginning to have kind of begun to scratch their heads anew. um, Number one, about what went wrong in Christian theology? Why, why is it, Mm -hmm. how is it that Christian theology um, in some sense, laid the foundation for, for Hitler's ideology. I mean, that's a big wake-up call. Um, and how is it that the majority of Christians in, in Europe at the time didn't do anything about it? I mean, the Catholic Church signs an accord with Hitler. So I think that's a, that's a major, um, again, kind of a wake-up call to Christian theology and the way that it's sort of been lulled into a, a certain um, indifference at the very best towards the Jewish people and hostility at the worst. Um, and then also the the foundation of the modern state of Israel, which which comes in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, and it reminds Christians. And again, this is a chapter in the book about the significance of the land and and the mm-hmm. way that the land of Israel functions in God's covenant with the people of Israel. And so, in the aftermath of this, you have you have this this incredible era that we're still very much living in, where where Christians begin to think, and Christian institutions like the Catholic Church, for example, uh, and many other Christian denominations, in the aftermath of the Catholic Church rethinking these, these questions begins to say, what did we miss? Like, what have we missed in terms of Christianity's indelible connection to Judaism and rootedness within this kind of Jewish soil? Um, and so you have lots of Christians and Jews who are engaging on in really unprecedented ways, I would say, mm-hmm. theologically, in terms of social justice initiatives, all kinds of things. Um, and interestingly, I, I mean, maybe in a way that makes sense, Messianic Jews have been Kind of a nobody quite knows what to do with them because part of the tenor of contemporary Jewish Christian relations is you have Jews coming to the table and you have Christians coming to the table who are very much living in this reality of the parting of the ways. Judaism and Christianity become separate things. Jews do Jewish things, Christians do Christian things. We can come together, we can share, we can learn from each other. Um, but there's a real there seems to be a real boundary that gets crossed when someone like myself wants to say, I'm Jewish and Christian. I'm Jewish and believe that Jesus is the Messiah because it seems to sort of transgress these boundaries that the dialogue has come to depend upon. Um, And yet I think we're also seeing really encouraging strides being taken in that regard. Um, And I've had mixed experiences. I've had really painful experiences of exclusion and rejection um, in certain settings. And I've also had very hopeful Mm -hmm. experiences of, wait a second, like, why wouldn't there be space for people like myself, who in some ways are connected to like the early community of Yeshua and his followers of Jesus and his followers. So, so it's been very mixed. And yet I think of something that my, my friend and mentor Mark Kinzer said to me, which is, you know, it doesn't matter if my vocation, if the things that I envision and dream for in my life, both in terms of community and my profession and my vocation doesn't really matter if they succeed or not. I it's worth it. It's worth Mm. it for me to dedicate myself to the things that I'm dedicating myself to, because it's for me, the most authentic way to express who I am and to try to raise as a question in Jewish communities and in Christian communities and Messianic Jewish communities, um, this conversation that I think increasingly needs to be had. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. I know it has helped me, and I am sure it has helped those who are listening.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's really a joy to talk with you about these things.
1: If you would like to dive deeper, you'll find a link to Jen's book, Finding Messiah, in the show notes, along with a link to the eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast.
2: Tune in next time.